Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, the trail less traveled leads to the hangar at North Star Jet here in Missoula, Montana. We are sitting under the wing of a Cessna 172. Over to our left is a Piper Arrow and then another beautiful airplane. There is a student doing a pre-flight check, and I'm sitting here with a charter pilot and flight instructor by the name of Daniel Menere. Daniel was born in Florida. She grew up on the beach south of Daytona, and when she was 10, she moved to Sun Valley, Idaho. She studied aerospace engineering at the University of Bristol and worked all over the world. For seven years, she worked as a field engineer in Erbil, Iraq, and during that period of time, she worked in four different countries. Now, she works as a charter pilot and flight instructor here in Missoula, Montana, and in addition to that, she has many other passions, including whitewater kayaking, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, traveling, cooking, and flying her own twin Comanche between Florida and Montana. So with that, Danielle, my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Well, I was born in Florida, as she said. I was there until I was 10 years old. You know, I was young at the time, but I obviously was a very inspired child, I think you could say, or my mom would say that. I knew from a very, very, very young age that I wanted to be an astronaut. Without a doubt, I mean, maybe like five years old, I had a book and it was this cartoon book and it said, I want to be an astronaut and I want to go to space. And that was my favorite book. We lived about 30 minutes north of the Kennedy Space Center, so we didn't even sometimes realize that there would be a launch on, especially in the middle of the night. It would just rattle our house and windows, and then we'd all wake up and we'd go out and we'd watch the light fly through the sky. And I was like, yep, that's me. I'm going to be in that one day. So in terms of aviation, that was definitely a large part of where I started My grandfather owned a flight-based operator out of New Smyrna, and he had a few smaller planes. He actually owned the Twin Comanche that Mandela mentioned earlier and had taken me on a few flights. So he was also a large part of that inspiration when I was young in terms of aviation. My family, in terms of traveling, we actually spent every year going on a ski vacation. And so I started skiing when I was two years old. And as much as I liked Florida, (laughs) it was nothing compared to the mountains for me. When my mom and dad got a divorce, I was eight years old, and my mom said, if we could move anywhere in the world, where would you go? I said, anywhere I could ski. I didn't care. So my mom decided that she would take us to a mountain town, unbelievably, As a single parent, she picked up my sister and I and drove across the country in a U-Haul and stopped in Sun Valley, Idaho. And that's how we ended up there. 
<laughs> so I was young. I didn't kind of see the adventuresome spirit of my mom and my grandfather and my grandmother as much at that age. But now looking back on it, it's not adventure maybe in the sense that we approach it in terms of going class five kayaking or something, but just that ability to be able to take two children and just look at something and say, you know what, I think I'm going to try something new. And I can imagine that was probably pretty scary for my mom, but she did it. And it was the best thing that ever happened to my sister and I because we were able to continue growing up in this mountain town where there was just such a great community for children. We skied, I played soccer, I played tennis, went played in the mountains. That's when I first started whitewater rafting, too, so it was kind of my first introduction to rivers. That's a lot of the adventure inspiration I got. I would say another really large person in my life at a young age was my grandmother. She is 87 years old right now. She's still alive. My grandfather met her in El Paso, Texas, because she was living in Juarez at the time. She's from Mexico, and she was traveling across the border to pick cotton in Arizona. And they met, fell in love, got married. He took her back to Florida, and she got her GED, got a job, learned to fly, and flew charter flights and scenic flights and she towed banners for my grandfather's business and at the time in the 60s that was pretty exceptional what she was doing so she definitely was more of an inspiration now than I thought she was I think I didn't realize how powerful that was until I got older Mm -hmm. we are still very 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 close Danielle, I would love to talk to you more about your grandparents and in particular your grandfather's twin Comanche and some of the memories you have about flying with your grandfather and just about that plane in particular because that seems like that was one of the first important planes in your life. It was. It was the first and it is the only plane I've ever owned. I don't have a lot of younger memories with it. It was a lot more often used with my mother, so she has a lot more memories with that plane. It was my grandfather's personal plane. So he had a flight school and a charter business, and he flew a lot of different planes, but that was his plane through and through. He bought it in 1968. It was built in 1966, so it's been in my family for a very, very long time. He did all the maintenance on it until he wasn't able to do the maintenance. And he told me oh gosh, probably 10 years ago now, that he was going to sell it. And so I was like, okay. I was a pilot at that time. I got my pilot's license when I was 18. And I always joked with him, hey, do you ever want to get rid of a plane? Just think about me. I know how to fly. And he never really put much credence to that. And then one day, out of the blue, just was like, I am not selling this plane. We're keeping it in the family. And I was the only person that could fly in the family, so it came to me. And I learned to fly it. I was pretty young in my aviation career at the time, but I learned to fly it. 
and flew it back from Florida to Montana, and I've flown it around a bit here. Personally, I would love to keep the plane, but it's just a little more of a financial burden than I can handle at this point in my life. So I'm probably going to let it go. But it, yeah, it's. I think that's the hardest thing about selling it is I'm trying to find that person that will respect it as much as I do. Can you tell us a little bit about the character of your Twin Comanche? The Twin Comanche is your classic 1960 sports car. It is beautiful on the outside. It's just got beautiful lines. And it flies like a sports car if you could fly a sports car. I mean, it's agile. It's quick. It's probably one of the most fun planes I've ever flown. It just feels right in the air. Imagine Miami Vice. Mm -hmm. That is the plane that should have been taking drugs back and forth between Columbia. <laughs> like, that's the, I'm trying to put an image in your mind about what this plane should be, and that is this plane. Yeah. And my grandpa, did, he didn't use it for drugs, obviously, but he did, <laughs> he, he did use it to go back and forth to the Bahamas. It was his Bahamas runner. Yeah. All right, Danielle, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the transition from Sun Valley, Idaho, to studying aerospace engineering at the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. Thank God for Google. That's all I can say. <laughs> so when I was 17, Google was new. You know, if you need to open the hangar, just... Okay, yeah, just wait for a second while we open Yeah, we got a flight school student right now. We hear the hangar open. They're pulling a plane out to go for a little zip around the area. Danielle, tell us about what you see when they open up the hangar and what the conditions for flying are today. You were flying earlier this morning? Yeah. Oh, beautiful conditions. Nice cold day. little icy on the tarmac, but the clouds are high enough that it's just nice. Cold is always good when you're flying. Oh, now we see another airplane coming in for a landing right now. It is a beautiful day. This is so awesome. Definitely setting the scene. Sitting here with a flight instructor watching a student head out. What's this airplane that's coming in for a landing? C-130 just coming in, doing a couple touch-and-goes in the pattern. They probably came here from Great Falls or something. We'll hear it. See if they're doing a touch-and-go. Oh, yeah. He's going. Wow. Even good pilots have to practice landings. <laughs> You're on the trail less traveled, and today we are recording in the hangar at North Star Jet. We're sitting nearby a Cessna 172 that's being pulled out by another flight instructor and a student, and they're heading up for a flight. And we're sitting here with Daniel Miner. Daniel was born in Florida and raised south of Daytona. She moved to Sun Valley, Idaho at the age of 10, but Danielle knew she wanted to be an astronaut since she was five years old. So we're talking to her about the transition from Sun Valley, Idaho to the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. I knew what I wanted to study. I think that was the biggest thing for me. I knew I wanted to be an engineer and I knew I wanted to do it in the aviation field. Aerospace seemed like the proper choice. My mom, she was a librarian and she 
was very on top of getting prepared to go to college. She's like, you will go to college, and you are going to do it this way, and we're going to check all these blah, 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 like, boxes and make sure everything is perfect. So we did all that. And I was thinking maybe the University of Colorado or Virginia Tech or whatever. And then one night, I was young, I was teenager right and I was playing on the internet and so I started googling aerospace engineering universities abroad and I was like well abroad's kind of vague so <laughs> I speak Spanish-ish but not well enough to maybe study engineering so I thought oh aerospace engineering in Australia New Zealand England anywhere they speak English mm -hmm. and Bristol came up because they are the headquarters for Airbus Rolls-Royce, BA Systems. I mean, it's where the Concorde flew out of. It's got a huge aerospace history. And they have a very, very good department in that. So I thought, why not? And my mom looked at me and she was like, if you want to do that, I am not helping you. And I was like, okay, fine. So I did the entire application by myself. And I gave her a presentation about why it would cost her less money to send me abroad. Because I get my master's in less time. And I got my visa, and I did everything. And this is actually a fun story. I was going on to the Junior Olympics for skiing. It was spring break, and I had one more race left. And it was a downhill race. All I had to do was finish, because if you finish, you get points, and then you can make it into the Junior Olympics. If you don't finish, you don't get any points. So all I had to do was finish. I was already in. Well, I crashed pretty bad, and ended up not making the Junior Olympics. I was on the wait list, and my mom goes, well, the money we would have spent to go to Junior Olympics, we could actually just uh, fly over to England and check out University of Bristol if you're serious about going there. And I was like, no, I think I'm pretty serious. And so we flew to England, and we checked it out, and she's like, you know, this is actually a really nice town. I, I support this. And that was actually really how I ended up going there, was crashing in my, in my ski race. Danielle, can we speak a little bit more about aerospace engineering and what you were studying in school, like what some of the lessons were like, and then, you know, actually applying that into a career? For anybody who has studied engineering, really all the basics are the same. So you're studying, you know, mechanics and any type of physics, thermodynamics, structural type of engineering. The difference is with aerospace engineering mainly are the examples you're going to be more focused on airplanes and then the other side of it is because of the weight limitations you do have some things that you really focus on for that type of engineering coming from the united states going to a university in england was a bit of a big step i remember My friends telling me their first classes were like general education classes. Well, my first class was fluids and thermodynamics with an Indian lecturer who said fuel like fuel, and I couldn't understand half of the words that he said. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like right into the deep end with that type of study. But it was good. I really enjoyed it. it it's right up my alley in terms of I like studying. And honestly, if anybody ever does want to be a pilot, you, you should probably like studying. That's a, that's a good trait to have mm -hmm. <laughs> for a pilot. Yeah. So. What are some of the different career paths that someone with a background in aerospace engineering might pursue? Because engineering is so similar 
in all its foundations, honestly, you could pretty much do anything. And that's how I ended up in the oil field because I just wanted a job and I was going to go to Boeing. I'd actually done an internship for Boeing. We were working on a phase one design, so basically the very beginning of a design phase for a replacement of the Boeing 737. Looking back on that, that's actually probably the Max 8 that I would have been working on, so that's kind of crazy. I decided that I wasn't ready to sit in an office. As much as I liked theory and the math and the science and the fun stuff that we were learning, the office was killing me. And I only did it for three months in Seattle, and I was like, no way, not for me, can't do it. And I decided to start looking for other jobs. With an engineering degree in any type of engineering, you can really go into anything. And I ended up finding this job in the oil field because I just decided to go to a career fair, and they looked at me and they just said, oh, you're interested in uh, traveling and working outside. And I was like, uh, who are you? Oh, we're Schlumberger. I was like, okay, yeah, no, I'm really interested in traveling and working outside. That's exactly what I want to do. You nailed it. I go, well, what do I have to do? And they go, well, we work in the oil field, so you have to work on an oil rig. At that time, I couldn't have drawn an oil rig for the person that was about to hire me. I didn't even know what they looked like. I thought oil was going to be squirting out of the ground when I got there. It's not like that. (laughs) I learned later. So... Yeah, it was super random. That's how I ended up on oil rigs. Wow. (laughs) Today, the trail as traveled is being recorded in the hangar at North Star Jet here in Missoula, Montana. We're sitting near a Piper Arrow with my guest today, Daniel Muneer. She is a charter pilot and flight instructor with many passions, including whitewater kayaking, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, traveling, cooking, river guiding, and flying her grandfather's twin Comanche between Florida and Montana. Danielle is amazing. If you're listening to this and you've had the pleasure of being in her presence, then you know what I'm talking about. She is kind, and she is talented, and she is beautiful, and I'm really honored to be sitting here in the hangar with her today. She inspires me greatly. I went up on my first Discovery flight, and Danielle, can you tell us a little bit about the Discovery flight? All I know is that I was very inspired to do flight school after my Discovery flight with you. Yeah, a Discovery flight. We do them here at North Star Jet, right in Missoula, for 45 bucks, so... If anybody is ever interested, I'm not trying to advertise right now, but it is a super fun thing to do if you're thinking about flying because it actually gets you out there holding the controls, feeling what it's like, seeing the process that it would take to get an airplane off the ground, flying around, and then back on the ground, and seeing if that'd be something that you would be into. I think a lot of people don't actually know that the whole general aviation side exists. They only see flying and airlines. Awesome. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about North Star Jet and opportunities for flight school here because Danielle is a flight instructor as well as a charter pilot. But I'd like to dive into the transition from studying aerospace engineering at the University of Bristol to being a field engineer based out of Erbil, Iraq for seven years. And Danielle worked in over four different countries during that period of time. So, Danielle, when I think of an oil rig, I think of the beginning to Armageddon when Ben Affleck is caught sleeping with Lev Tyler and then Bruce Willis throws a tantrum and he chases Ben Affleck all over this oil rig with a gun, I think, and people are like, oh, you're crazy. So that's what I think of when I think of an oil rig. 
Could you explain a little bit about your career as a field engineer on an oil rig and just, you know, teach me a little bit more about the whole vibe? If it makes you feel any better, Mandela, that's exactly what I thought I was going to be doing when I started. So, <laughs> you know, there are aspects of it, too, that it's kind of crazy out there. But I would say, lucky for all the listeners, nobody has any idea what a field engineer on an oil rig does. So I got this question a lot. <laughs> The company I worked for was called Schlumberger. We didn't own oil rigs. We weren't Chevrons, Exxon, anything like that. We were a third-party service company. So there's three big segments on an oil rig. You have the person who owns the rig. You have the person who owns the oil. And then you have all your third-party people. The person who owns the rig... Nobody's ever heard of them unless you've watched the Deepwater Horizon because that would have been Transocean. They're the ones that owned that rig. BP was the person who owned the oil on that rig, just as an example. And then all the third-party people would just be a conglomeration of multiple, multiple companies got contracted out to do random stuff. My company did a lot of stuff. The segment that I worked for was called Wireline. It was actually called Wireline Logging. And... It's funny because now my husband logs trees. Well, we logged oil wells. We actually had to go to our logging unit and go log. <laughs> like, it was funny how that kind of came around. But anyway, what we did was we had these tools. We would take them out to the oil rig. When the company would ask us for information, they said, hey, we want to know what type of fluid or what type of rock is in this well. We would take our tools out there. We would hook them all up to this big, long wire line. It was actually just a really thick cable that had electrical connections so that we could physically see information on computers at the surface that our tools were discovering down, could be anywhere between 5,000 and 25,000 feet below the ground. We would send our tools down. We would gather that information it would be put into these pretty pieces of paper with lots of color on them. We would print them off, and we would give them to the geologists, and the geologists would interpret them as needed. We would go for anywhere between you know one or two days on an oil rig to uh, two to three weeks, depending on how long the job took. And I worked on oil rigs that were on the land. I worked for deep water rigs. I worked for shallow water rigs in the ocean, all sorts of different types of oil rigs. And then in different countries, I actually started in Qatar and worked out in Doha for a year. And then I moved to Indonesia for about three to four years, three years of working and one year of time off living in Indonesia, which was amazing. And then another year in Iraq. Danielle, let's talk to you a little bit about that one year that you uh, took off for leisure time. You were actually working on another project at that time. Let's tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so after working for three to four years on the oil rigs, it gets to you. It's a lot. You're tired. It's hard work even at a young age. And in my personal ethical side of me, I loved working on the oil rigs because of the experiences that it gave me. I was able to meet a lot of people, a lot of local people. Oftentimes we would have days where there would be 10 or 15 people in a room and not one person would be from the same country. And that was normal. So I loved that about it. I loved living in random countries, but ethically it was like hard. I'd never felt 100% secure in that decision. So after living in Indonesia for two years, 
I was really enjoying the country, and I had earned a little bit of money, so I decided to buy a piece of property. And I wanted to build this bed and breakfast that was relatively, as best you could in Indonesia, sustainable type of place where you would have solar or some sort of microhydro that was powering the place. And it ended up having four units and a little kitchen area, and it was on two and a half acres. Still is. I actually still own it. I have a friend working on it now. The buildings did not handle too well through those earthquakes about three years ago. Mm-hmm. So right now it's operating more as a big piece of land where they get backpackers and stuff coming and staying more intense than actually in the buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent a year working on that project and I did most everything myself. I obviously hired some people to do the tile and whatnot. I already pretty much spoke the language, but that definitely, like solidified my fluency in the language because I had to do all of my negotiating in that language and it was a learning experience it makes living in the United States seem really easy if you have like a a pipe or something that's burst or some plumbing electrical issue I'm just like oh no big deal like we used to fix this with bike tires it's good (laughs) I can actually go to the hardware store right now and buy something this is awesome so my really good friend owns it now, and I, I support that. And I'm, I try to get back every couple of years just to go say hi to her and check on it. Beautiful, Danielle. Uh, I know we're sitting here in the hangar at North Star where you work, and it's a winter day in Missoula, but any chance you could close your eyes and kind of take us there to your land in Indonesia? It's pretty spectacular. It's on the island of Lombok, and Lombok is pretty much just one mountain. It's a volcano. It's the second highest volcano in Indonesia. Off the top of my head, it's something around 3,300 meters, so about 10,000 feet. And from my property, you have a view. You can't quite see the ocean, but you can see the relief that would go down. And then you're right at the base of that mountain. If you wanted to hike it, you can just hop over my fence in the back and walk up the mountain. And I think... The most vivid image I can portray from it is during sunset. Because what happens when we're that high up is oftentimes we end up in the afternoon being above the clouds. So all the clouds are below. And then as the sun starts to drop, you just get colors everywhere just bouncing off the clouds that are below you. And the lushness of the forest there versus it contrasting to the colorful sunset. I think there was not a single day at 6.30 in the afternoon when I didn't just sit out and just reflect for even five minutes and just be like, whoa, that is, that is awesome. Mm-hmm. So one thing I learned doing that was it was probably the best I ever felt as just a human being because I was waking up with the sun I was working all day and I was going to sleep with the sun and I was eating fresh farm vegetables and yet you're working hard and everything is happening so slow and it's really easy as a western person to let that get to you and in the beginning I think it probably did get to me and sometimes it would get to me but then you would just let it happen And you would just accept all of this slowness. 
and it slowed you down. And I think that I have to remember those times in my life now to say, hey, sometimes you just have to slow down. It's going to be okay. We are going to be okay. And I'm glad I went through that experience. Amazing. If you've just tuned in, that is the voice of Danielle Miner. She is a charter pilot and flight instructor based here in Missoula, Montana. We are currently recording the trail that's traveled in the hangar at North Star Jet. We're sitting near a Piper Arrow, and just a moment ago, a Cessna 172 went out for a training with another instructor. Danielle, I'd like to now talk to you about getting back into aviation. So you studied aerospace engineering. From the age of five, you knew you wanted to be an astronaut. You still want to be an astronaut, and you're working towards that right now. But how did we come back to aviation after your seven years of working as a field engineer in the oil rigs and also developing your land in Indonesia? That's a good question. (laughs) That's a long question. And slightly personal, honestly. When I was living in Indonesia, I didn't always have a boyfriend there, but uh, there were three years, including the time that I was working on the land, where I had an Indonesian boyfriend. So that definitely kept my heart over there. When that ended, I still love Indonesia, don't get me wrong. But I knew that I needed to take some time away. And... I ended up going back to work after Indonesia. I did another year of work in Iraq. And then, this is a great story. I'm sorry, can I tangent? Please do. Okay. So I'm in Iraq. This is all true. It sounds crazy. And I'd been there a year, and we were on an Exxon rig. I was working on an explosives job. There were two engineers. The job was supposed to take seven days. We were on, like, day two. Because there were two engineers, that meant I actually got to sleep, which was always a plus when you're working in that situation. So I finally, on day two, I'm like, I'm out, and I go to sleep. And two hours later, I get a bang on my door. Wake up. you got to pack your bags. We're leaving. I'm like, the job is seven days long. There is no way we're leaving. Like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. So I go back to sleep because I've only been asleep two hours and I'm really tired. And I get another bang on the door. Get up, pack your bags, we have to go. I was like, all right, what are you talking about? Your truck is pretty much packed up. There's not a single person left on the rig. You have to pack your bags and go. ISIS is just around the corner. And I was like, wait, what? Like like the the one we see on the news? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that one, (laughs) like they're coming. We have to go. So sure enough, they weren't kidding. I get out. All of our explosives have been undone because we had all of our guns loaded with explosives. So they had picked everything out. And so we're trying to clear this rig. Like They're trying to get every person off the rig immediately. Because Exxon's also an American company. There are a lot of expats there that they needed to get out of the country. So I come back to the rig. Everything is being shut down. Half of the people have already left. My company's cleaning stuff up, you know, I don't know, probably an hour later, we get everything cleaned up, they put the shutoff valves onto the well, we drive out, they close the gate, and they lock it, and we drive back to Erbil, because we're close to Mosul at the time, we actually were kind of over near that Mosul area. We come back into Erbil, and there are cars all along the road with, like, couches and 
mattresses on their roofs, like families leaving all these cities that they were living in and moving to the main capital city. I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And we go back, everybody talks it through, and my company decides that we're going to stay a little longer in Erbil. We're not going to go on any more jobs. We're going to stay and try to see how this plays out. Well, so we stay like another six or seven days in Erbil. By this time, the whole like situation is getting pretty bad. Refugees are coming in by the thousands into the city because the city's a round citadel type city, so it's pretty safe. It doesn't have many ports of entry, and they're all relatively secure. And Obama starts the airstrikes. We are still in Erbil. When he does the airstrikes, he shuts down the airspace. So now we can't get out because there's no airplanes that are leaving Erbil at the time. And this is only like a few months after, I think, a Malaysian Airlines got shot down. Mm-hmm. So a lot of airlines were very hesitant to go into, quote-unquote, places like that. <laughs> The only airline that was flying was Middle Eastern Airlines out of Lebanon. And then finally they stopped. So Schlumberger has 250 employees that they have to get out of her bill. And they call up Iraqi Airways and they charter a 737. And they get us to Dubai, like in the middle of the night. So we all pack on an airplane and go to Dubai. So that actually was how I ended up leaving Iraq randomly, like just out of the blue. was not expecting it at all. After a few weeks of them figuring stuff out, they find me a location in Colorado where I can work for a few months. And that was the first time I had worked or lived back in the States since 2004. And this was in 2014. And I worked there for three months. And then at that time, that's when there was kind of a pretty big recession. And so the oil work was pretty much at rock bottom. They couldn't send me back to Iraq because ISIS had invaded, and they couldn't send me anywhere else because they were shutting down locations because there was a recession. That's when I called up my good friend Todd Ritchie and see what he was doing. And he was like, oh, I'm not really doing anything. want to hang out? And so that's when we started hanging out, and that's how I ended up in Missoula. And I drove up to Missoula, hung out with him. You know, I mean, I enjoyed my time off for a little bit. I didn't go straight into, like, thinking about a new career. But when I realized that oil was not going to happen again, I was like, you know, there's that thing I always like to do called flying. And so I came to North Star, and I started taking lessons. Again, I did already have my private pilot's license. I think I mentioned that earlier. But I started all of my ratings at that time. So that was kind of how I made the move back to the United States. And that young man by the name of Todd Ritchie, what's he up to these days? You guys still hanging out? Well, that, that, <laughs> that's just a story of gold, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I couch surfed on his bed for <laughs> a, few, a few months, and we started dating. And in 2018, we tied the knot on the Locksaw River. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Today, the trail as traveled is being recorded in the hangar at North Star Jet, located here in Missoula, Montana. It's a beautiful, crisp winter day, and we're sitting near a Piper Arrow. About 30 minutes ago, one of the flight instructors and a student opened up the hangar and took out their Cessna 172. I'm sitting here with another flight instructor and charter pilot. Her name is Danielle Manair. Danielle is 
passionate about flying, kayaking, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, traveling, cooking, and flying her grandfather's twin Comanche between Florida and Montana. We've been talking to her about wanting to pursue a career as an astronaut from the age of five to working on the oil rigs based out of Iraq. After her time working out of Iraq, Danielle decided to get back into flying. And so, Danielle, I'd love to talk to you now about studying flight, teaching as an instructor here in Missoula, and then how that has balanced you out as a human where you can spend the first part of your day surfing the airwaves above Missoula to going down to downtown Missoula and surfing the wave on your kayak and how that merely changes your perspective on our planet. Actually, I have my kayak in the back of my car right now. (laughs) I can't say enough for Missoula in terms of that question because we have that opportunity here. And it is really important for me to live in a place that has those opportunities. After living so long in countries where recreational activity was so far down their list of things that they required in their daily life, I hiked a lot and ran, but, you know, you just didn't rock climb or kayak out there. So coming back to Missoula was just amazing. Brought me back to my roots of having grown up in Idaho I learned how to whitewater kayak as soon as I got back to Missoula. I continued rock climbing and got a lot better at it when I was actually living in a place where I could do it all the time. Same with mountain biking. And having the access to a flight school right in town was amazing. In terms of my journey, I treated it like a job. I had some excess cash, so that helped a lot financially. Flight school is not the cheapest thing in the world, but neither is college. (laughs) So, you know, I think honestly, these days, if this is something you want to pursue, you could almost do it in place of a college degree because it's a great career. So I started out, I met Trevor, who was my flight instructor. We did instrument training and that took about three to four months. I treated it like a full time job. I studied pretty much all day and flew whenever the weather was good and got my rating in December 2000. 16 I believe then after that got my rating and left with Todd to go down to Mexico and surf in Baja and then we flew to Chile where we kayaked for the next three months so those are always my rewards I was like okay I'm going to get a rating and then I'm going to go travel and so I was able to really expand my ability to be able to surf and kayak quickly because I was doing those pretty much full-time as well when I wasn't flying And then I'd come back, got my commercial rating, and at that time I was actually like, hey, I think I should probably get a job. (laughs) It's been fun being fun employed in Missoula, but you know, that can only last so long. Fun employed in Missoula, that's the way to be. So I needed a job, but I didn't know what I could do in Missoula. And Todd had some connections with some whitewater rafting companies, and so I met one of those guys, and he's like, have you ever rode a raft? I was like, what? So that was just another one of my adventures in life. He said he would teach me, and I just went out and learned how to row a raft and started taking people down the Alberton Gorge. And so I was whitewater rafting, making a tiny bit of money, and then working on my commercial license for flying. When I got my 250 hours, I got my commercial license, and 
then I knew I had something. I was like, okay, now I can start applying to jobs. But I didn't know what I wanted to be. I knew flight instruction was an option. This is the whole thing with aviation is there are so many things you can do. It's hard to even put it into words, honestly. And there's not really any guidelines out there for it. And unfortunately, it is one of those careers that's kind of especially in, say, not the big corporation type airlines. It's kind of a who you know, which can be frustrating if you don't know anybody, which I didn't really know anybody. So (laughs) it's a little frustrating. I sent out applications to Alaska. I did a bunch of bush pilot applications to Alaska. I did some surveying all around the United States, pretty much anything that I thought like potentially they might hire me. I got a couple like bites, but nothing really that was sounding too interesting. And then winter came again. So Todd and I were like, well, we'll just take off and we'll go to Baja again. We'll go surfing. We'll go to Chile, keep kayaking and we'll come back. And on my way back, I was like, I think I'm just going to go for the flight instructor route and just see where that takes me. At least I'm still flying. I kept studying, got my flight instructor certificate in June of 2018. Northstar wanted a flight instructor starting in like February of 2018. And they're like, when are you done yet? Are you done yet? Have you gotten it yet? And I was like, no, I haven't got it yet. I'm, I'm working on it. And finally they said, okay, well, you're close now. We're going to hire you. I did all of my paperwork to get a job here in Missoula working as a flight instructor. I also had a wedding on May 19th, and then my flight instructor ride like a week after I got married. So I was planning a wedding and studying for my flight instructor certificate. And I take my check ride, and it's an eight-hour check ride to get your flight instructor certificate. And I failed on the last maneuver. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have a job. I have to tell my boss that just hired me, <laughs> that I can't work because I failed my check ride. Oh, oh, it was devastating. It wasn't like a bad fail. Don't get me wrong. The guy actually felt bad about failing me. It's, it's just a flying. It, it was not nothing that was like dangerous or anything, but he's like, no, I gotta. So a week later, I fly to Helena and I do one takeoff and one landing to prove that I could do it because that's all I had left to do. And he signs it off and I come back and I was like, Okay, I just paid my last credit card bill. Actually, I just paid for my flights with my credit card, banking on this job, knowing that I failed the check ride. So when I finally like got my pass, I was like, okay. So I became a flight instructor through thick and thin. I started flying here. I now have about 1,400 hours of instruction given, which it's hard to fathom that, I think, People are like, 1400 hours, that doesn't seem like very much. And flying, that is actually a lot. That took me about two years of pretty much full-time work to get that many hours. And then they hired me as a charter pilot a year ago, flying a King Air. I absolutely love the company I work for, and I'm so happy that they were going to keep me in the company. After two years of instruction, like I was kind of thinking, you know, if you couldn't tell by my life story, I get itchy feet really fast. I'm always ready to move and, like, do stuff. And so I never get too stuck in any career for too long. So I was so happy when they offered me to stay in the company because I was ready to move. 
And a good friend down in Cascade, Idaho, was looking at me to come down and fly 206s in the Frank Church to support rafting operations on the Middle Fork of the Salmon. And he called me about a week and a half after Northstar gave me the promotion to fly the Kinger. And I was like, oh, Bill, I would love to, but I just got hired on as a Kinger pilot. And he goes, oh, you flying a Kinger now? I was like, yeah. He goes, okay, well, man, that's awesome. You just call us if you ever don't want to do that anymore. You got a job anytime. Just to put into perspective what it meant to move into a Kinger it's one of those airplanes that, like, afterwards, you really open up your doors of possibility to do anything in aviation. But, you know, it's a journey. It's always a journey. There's never an end with a career like this. Yeah. So to come back to the kayaking again, I think, for me, the perspective... Honestly, this past year has been a very eye-opening experience because I haven't actually been flying a lot. I've been doing a lot more running and kayaking and stuff. And I realized how important that both perspectives really have on me and how important it is for me to actually, as a human, to actually go out and just fly. Like any very intense sport, you are very much in the moment every single time you take off to when you land again. People don't call you. You don't text. Just like when you put on the river and then you take off. That, those moments between putting on the river and floating the river and then getting off the river, those are yours to savor and to really appreciate, to look at the sky and the rocks and the water and talk to your friends. And Flying is that same way. It allows you, at least for me, to kind of take a breath of relief to your day-to-day grind. So from my side, since it's my job... I'm pretty darn fortunate because my breath of fresh air to get away from the day-to-day grind actually is financing some stuff for me. So (laughs) that's awesome. I'm very, very fortunate in that. That's the voice of Danielle Manier, and she is a charter pilot and flight instructor based here out of Missoula, Montana. We are recording the trail less traveled in the hangar at North Star Jet. Danielle, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about inspiration now. My little sister is 15 years old, and I would love it if you could speak to both young girls and women of all ages about realizing that this is available. Yes, absolutely. I think, actually for a lot of people, they don't realize how available it is, but especially for young girls and any girl, there are still only 6% of the pilots in the world are females. And for pilots who've actually made it a career that number is substantially less. And in all of my years of being in the aviation world, which has been enough, especially considering I started when I was 18, even though I took some time off, have felt support and love and people are open and willing to accept you as a female. I've never ever felt looked down upon because I was a girl. I think the only thing that I've really ever felt has been when an older person comes and they're like, they think I'm younger than I actually am. I think they don't actually realize that I'm 35. They think I'm like 18. And so they're like, wait a second. How are you teaching me how to fly? And then they get to know me and it's always fine after that. And for me, this will also go into kind of my life advice, is it's not 
that people around me don't support me. It's not that my family doesn't support me or my friends or anybody like that. Every single person in my life, fortunately for me, is very supportive of everything that I've ever wanted to do. It's me that puts the boundaries on myself. I'm the one that's like, I don't think I have it. And so I'm constantly having to remind myself that I do have it. And it doesn't matter how tall I am or what color my hair is or if I'm a girl or a boy or anything like that, that I am perfectly capable of succeeding. It sometimes takes longer than other times, but I am capable. And for people who don't have a support system like I have, because I think there are a lot of people that don't, that breaking down those personal boundaries can be even more challenging. Because now all of a sudden you're dealing with external pressures that are telling you you can't do it. And so then you start to believe that. And so that would be my biggest thing is it's available. And once you're in it, people will respect you. Yeah, don't be scared of that. It's amazing, actually. I have so many people tell me, oh, you're great. Like, I heard you are a fantastic flight instructor. I was like, really? Me? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, my God. <laughs> Danielle, I'd like to talk to you now about some of your upcoming dreams, including helping with fighting fires here in Montana and heading up into space one day. I'm not giving up on the space dream. I recently applied to the Astronaut Candidate Program, oh, probably about six months ago. And it's awesome. This is my second application. The first application, I obviously didn't get it or I wouldn't be sitting here right now. But they did give me a rejection letter, which was awesome. I was like, I got a letter from NASA. It's so cool. So, you know, and every time I apply now, I feel like my resume just gets that much better. Who knows? If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it's not for not trying. I still have a wonderful place here. You know, if that doesn't happen, I do work for a fantastic company where the ability to move yourself up within the aviation field and staying here in Missoula, which is like gold for me, is awesome because I started as a flight instructor. Now I'm flying the King Air. They have two big jets that they fly here that I can eventually learn how to fly. They also do air tanker, aerial firefighting with a big four engine. It's called a BA-146. And I think just for my lifestyle, once I get enough jet time, I think that would be a path that I would really like to pursue. Tell us about what that plane does exactly. So what that plane does is it flies that red retardant. So it doesn't actually put the fire out. What it does is it draws the lines around the fire to keep that fire from spreading. So they get deployed all over the western United States, and they've actually done one deployment down to Chile, and they're trying to get a contract down in Australia. So the opportunity to travel, which would really suit my life, would be awesome. We have been on the trail as traveled, speaking with Danielle Menier, and she is a charter pilot and flight instructor here in Missoula, Montana. She is also passionate about whitewater kayaking, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, traveling, cooking, and flying her grandfather's twin Comanche between Florida and Montana. Danielle is pursuing a career as an astronaut, but in the meantime, she's checking off a lot of other boxes along the way. She's a phenomenal young woman, and... I feel very inspired. I'm sure you do too. So, Danielle, for those listening who feel inspired to potentially take flight school here in Missoula with Northstar, how can they find out more information? 
We actually have a website, northstarmso.com, which gives you tons of information. You can Google North Star and it'll come up. We have two flight instructors right now and three airplanes. And the first place to start, I would definitely go with the Discovery flight and then getting to know the instructors and kind of coming up with your desires. Because I think that's a big thing, too, is just because you're hearing my story and this is the path I'm taking, there are a lot of paths in aviation. You could just get your pilot's license and be a recreational pilot and have fun flying around Missoula, maybe into the backcountry. You could go to the airlines, you could do international aid, a lot of options. Awesome. And one thing that was definitely an option for me in terms of pursuing flight school with not that much of financial means as a full-time river guide was women in aviation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. And so for the females that are interested in flight school, there are a lot of resources out there for financial aid, just like Mandela was saying scholarships with women in aviation. I can't give you the exact number, but there are a lot of scholarships that range from just starting your flying career in terms of getting a private pilot's license all the way up to the most recent scholarship that I applied to about a month ago, which was for my airline transport pilot certification. So in my years of flying, I think women in aviation have actually helped me about $13,000. Montana Department of Transportation has scholarships, as well as the 99s is another women-focused group that gives scholarships. So there's a lot of support in financial aid for that. Awesome. And Danielle, before we transition to the advice that you'd like to close your show with, is there any chance we could pop out that door right over there and uh, step out onto the tarmac and you could paint the picture for the listener as to what it looks like today here at your office? Yeah. All right. Okay. So we just walked out onto the tarmac here. I've got something like four BA-146 air tankers to my right. The old P2V, which used to be an air tanker, which looks like it might be in maintenance because it's got some parts missing. <laughs> Looking also in front of me, we got the nice mountainscape of the Missoula Bowl. By the way, if you ever do fly in Missoula, Missoula is like a homecoming I feel like every time I fly home to Missoula, you fly down into this bowl, and it always just feels like you've arrived home. Like you're not landing in some flat farm somewhere. You're like, oh, there's Missoula in that hole down there. It's smaller hole when you're up high. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we're looking out at the runway. We got a windsock and a control tower, and just a beautiful day. Nice scattered layer, probably a couple thousand feet above the runway. What makes today's flying conditions nice? It's got light winds. It could be a little bumpy uh, when you're climbing out, but I think overall it just looks like a nice, stable air. All right, Danielle, what is your advice for the listener that you'd like to close your show with? We talked about believing in yourself, but another thing for me is that in my vocabulary, I almost don't even believe that failure is a word that should be in the vocabulary. I think anytime if someone defines what you've done as failure, you actually have just not reached the exact outcome that you desired at that moment. And with you not reaching the, your desired outcome, you've probably learned a couple lessons. And so then the next time you try, you might get a little closer to reaching your desired outcome. 
as long as you keep moving forward with baby steps like that, I feel like eventually you have to go somewhere. That's just the way it works. Don't let failure bring you down. It happens to everybody. The other side that for me has just been so important is to not try to fight what the world's telling you so much. You can have dreams. I always dreamed to be an astronaut, but I never got so focused on that goal that I couldn't see opportunities that maybe led me astray intermittently. For example, I went and traveled working on an oil rig and then moved here. And and a lot of that was just me saying, well, I feel like the world's trying to tell me something right now. I should probably listen. (laughs) And just listening to those small voices in your head, it's good to be driven, but you don't want to be so stuck on your goal. And then, like I said, that last piece of advice for me is believe in yourself 100%. Don't let any other people or community, friends, environment, whatever, don't let them tell you that this isn't something that you are capable of because everybody is capable. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. The show airs every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. The show is also an award-winning podcast available on all platforms, and you can follow us as we record the show around the world by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. If you enjoy listening to The Trail Less Traveled, please consider supporting us on Patreon for access to The Trail Less Traveled visual series. You can visit our Patreon account by visiting patreon.com slash Traveled. All right, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. G'day mate, this is Joe coming to you from the Sunshine Coast in Eastern Australia. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Desert Green Hemp family farmed, organically grown, tested and manufactured in Sisters, Oregon. Desert Green grows some of the finest genetics in the world using organic and biodynamic practices to provide the cleanest and most effective CBD. The rich volcanic mountain soils, dry climate and directly sourced mountain spring waters are what gives Desert Green uniquely pure and powerful CBD products. They also grow a variety of herbs and flowers on their farms that not only provide a direct source for some of their products, but also introduce beneficial bugs and pollinators to their land. Desert Green Hemp pride themselves on contributing to the regeneration of social, economic and environmental health on our planet. Visit DesertGreenHemp.com and remember to use the promo code MANDELA, M-A-N-D-E-L-A, This promo code will get you discounts and special offers. That promo code, Mandela, directly helps you and the future of Adventure Radio.